have any of you ever um, found yourself frustrated with somebody who failed to follow through on something you asked them to do? Anybody ever lived in that zone of you've asked somebody and they just sort of crapped out on the commitment that they made? If you've ever experienced that, if that's been you, um, Krista is going to be starting a support group uh, because she's just tired of dealing with me all by herself. That's basically the, the bottom line. It's, it's funny because uh, so many of you remarked to me at one point or another about my memory, how amazing my memory is because I preach without notes and whatever. And some of you have actually made that comment in front of Krista. And uh, she will typically laugh out loud when somebody says it because literally this is the only thing in the world I can remember. This is it. This is the only thing that sticks in my memory, which has been marvelous in the course of our marriage for me helping out around the house, doing the things that Krista has asked me to do. Right, like early on in our marriage, she would say to me, like, hey, I'm going to work. Can you clean the bathroom before I get home? Yeah, no problem. And she'd go to work. She'd come home be like, did you clean the bathroom? Oh, I forgot. So we, we very quickly transitioned to uh, to-do lists. She wrote out, these are the chores I need you to do and leave it on the counter. But, but kind of my philosophy of chores, her philosophy is, do all your work first thing in the morning, and then you have the whole rest of the day. My philosophy is, if I know she's working 12 hours, I'm going to do a little bit here and a little bit there. And I don't care if I do chores here and there all day long. I'll read in between or do whatever. You know, like I just kind of spread it out. But then in spreading it out, I forget. And then she comes home and she's like, clean the bathroom. Oh, I forgot. So then she'll go and start to do it. I'm like, no, 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 it's my chore. So, well, you're taking too long. So we actually got to the point where we would do to-do lists, but beside the chore, I would ask her to write the date and time when that chore had to be finished or else she was going to be mad. Because I liked it, right? Spread it out. So she'd, be, she'd say, listen, we're having company coming over for dinner on Friday. Could that bathroom by, be cleaned by Friday lunch? I'd be like, yeah, no problem. And Wednesday would roll around. She'd say, you haven't cleaned the bathroom? No, no, no. I'll get to it. Thursday? No, no, no. I'll get to it. And then Friday at noon, she'd be like, so did you clean the bathroom? Oh, I forgot. Right? So, so we, we literally, we started to resort to setting timers in the oven or, you know, on my computer or whatever, to remind me that I had to do these things. I remember once years ago, uh, Kennedy was a little baby. Krista was going out for the afternoon. She said, can you do me a favor? In 90 minutes, I need you to wake Kennedy up and I need you to feed her. Can you do that? I can do that. She's like, do you need me to write it down? No, no, I don't need you to write it down. Should I set an oven timer to remind you? No, no, I'm fine. Trust me. She walked out the door. Four hours later, she comes home. She walks through the door. She's like, where's the baby? Ah, oh, crap. I forgot to wake the baby up. <laughs> like, so now, so then we got, so then I was committed. I'm setting timers, setting timers. This week, Kennedy has a throat infection. Krista calls me from work. She said, I gave Kennedy medicine at supper. Can you give her medicine at 10 p.m.? Yes, I can. That's 90 minutes from now. Yes, I am aware. Do you need to set a timer? I have already set a timer on my computer. It is ready. Is the volume on? The volume is on. Like, I am ready to go. When the timer goes off, I give her the medicine. I got it. It's perfect. Hang up the phone. I go back to reading my book, right? 90 minutes later, the timer goes off. And I'm like, oh, crap, I'm like in the middle of a page, and I got to give Kennedy medicine. Okay, I'm just going to mute it, and when I'm done the page, I got to go give her the medicine by the bottom of the page. Completely forgot. 
She comes home the next morning from work. Do you have Kennedy medicine? Oh, I forgot. It's like, this is like, I feel so bad. I mean, not bad enough to fix it, but I feel so bad for this, my poor wife, who is left to deal with this absolute incompetence when it comes to doing the things I need to do to remember. This woman is such a saint that I have, she is able so far to still restrain the wrath and the frustration that she must feel having four kids and then another big one on the side to deal with all the time. Because as you know, if, this, if you've ever been in a situation like that, which is to say married to a guy, uh, you just know how frustrating it is when somebody fails to do the thing that they've been asked to do. And that's the frustration that Jesus drills into uh, in the story that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. You can turn there uh, in however you uh, read your Bible. Um, we've been in this series called Beginning with the End in Mind, where we've been looking at the last sermon that Jesus preached uh, before um, he was arrested and crucified and died on the cross. And his last sermon is literally about when Jesus will come again, return back to earth to make every, all things right in our lives and in the world that sin has made wrong. And, uh, and this whole sermon is about how we, this sermon that Jesus preached, we've been looking at for five weeks, that how we are to live in light of the fact that Jesus will one day come, as the creed says, I believe that Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead. That Jesus is going to come back to earth and he is going to judge us for the lives that we've lived in followership of him between now and the time that he returns because as we've seen in this series he has called us to a spiritual wakefulness to a faithfulness to do the things that he has called us to do which last week we talked about fanning into flame stoking the fire of our love for God and our love for people and our love for the world because Jesus says over and over again only those who are ready will be rewarded when Jesus Returns Well, he digs metaphorically into this idea of readiness again. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, it says this. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. Jesus says, I want you to imagine, if you will, a very wealthy businessman or businesswoman who's going away on a long trip and needs to entrust her business to her top employees. I, now, I'm old enough to remember a day before the internet. I remember a day before email. I remember a day before cell phones and texting when it was impossible to stay connected to your business 24-7 while you were away traveling. This is not the reality that we live in. The last time I went away on vacation, one of our staff members texted me on vacation and said, hey, I'm sorry for the text. I know you're on vacation, but I also know that you're terrible at not working. And so, you know, here's the question. And of course, I answered it. Because we stay connected to our business 24-7 no matter where we are around the world. 
right? This is not the case in the ancient world. You have no telephone, you have no cell phone, no internet, whatever. When you go away on a long trip, you literally have to entrust your affairs to a trustworthy person who will take care of them for you while you're gone. And you have no idea how it's going unless you write a letter, which takes like a month to get there, right? Until you get back. And that's what this businesswoman does. She calls her top employees to her and she gives them portions of her business. To the one, she gives five bags of gold. The Greek word is talent. It was a bag of gold that weighed about 50 or 75 pounds. And it was the equivalent of pay for 6,000 days of labor by a common laborer. That was 6,000 denarii, which was 6,000 days worth of pay. So rough math for the sake of this morning at $14 an hour minimum wage, uh, working eight hours a day, 6,000 days worth of pay is approximately $3.4 million that she entrusts to the servant. She calls another one and gives him two bags of gold, which is about $1.3 million, and then um, invites a third one to come and only gives this third one one bag of gold, one talent, which is about $675,000. And she says, take care of this while I'm gone. And she leaves. Jesus says, verse 16, the man who had received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now the, you can tell who the employee of the month is, right? Like she says the, the, the gold gets given out according to ability. The first guy gets five bags and he gets the most gold. And it says he goes off at once to put the money to work. It immediately is the Greek word. He just, you, you sense the energy and the enthusiasm, the go-getter spirit. He gets, receives the gold and immediately he's engaged in trying to multiply the, the return on investment. And, uh, and then the second guy He's a decent employee. He doesn't get an immediately. He just kind of gets an also. He also goes out and he does the work. Maybe lacks a little bit of the energy, enthusiasm, the can-do spirit. But he also goes out and puts the money to work. And the two of them each generate 100% return on investment. $3.4 million becomes $6.8 million. $1.3 million becomes $2.6 million. The third servant has a different strategy. It's interesting in the story, the, the master doesn't record any instructions. Just gives the bag of gold and says, here, take care of this while I'm gone. The third servant has this idea that he, he has been entrusted with this enormous amount of money, $675,000, more money than he's ever been responsible for in his entire life. And he just doesn't want to screw it up. And so it says he digs a hole in the ground and he puts the money in the ground and covers it up. Now, this in the ancient world is an exceptionally prudent thing to do. Very wise. It's a world without banks. It's a world without safe deposit boxes. There is no place to keep your money safe unless you, you dig a hole in a secret location, drop the money in the hole, and cover it up. If nobody else knows where that money is, then it is safe because the only way for it to disappear as if somebody accidentally finds it and runs away with it. In fact, this was considered so wise, so prudent, this was kind of top level security in the ancient world that the rabbis said that a man could not be punished under Jewish law if he had been entrusted with money and he buried it in the ground and somebody found it and took it. This man was not responsible because he had done everything that he could do to keep the money safe. 
And that's what this guy's thinking. Listen, my master's entrusted me with an enormous amount of money. I don't want to lose any of it. I don't want to screw it up. I'm going to keep it as safe as I possibly can. Verse 19. It says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. Right, the the master returns, and now you begin to see how the metaphor of the story works. Jesus is the master who has been absent for a long period of time, but who will return one day and settle accounts with his servants. The servants in the story are us, those who profess to be followers of Jesus, those who have been entrusted by God with responsibility in Jesus' absence. And when Jesus returns, he is going to return to see what we have accomplished in his absence. So the master comes back, And the first guy comes first and he was given five bags of gold and it says he presented, it's kind of a formal, it's like show and tell, right? Like he presents five more bags of gold and he says, master, look at what I've done. I have doubled your money. You read a few verses down, the servant who was given the two bags of gold, it says that he presented the two bags of gold and the two bags extra. And he says, master, I've doubled your money. Look what I did. And the master is pleased. His master replied, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. He uh, rewards him in three ways. He rewards him with praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You are a virtuous, trustworthy servant. You have done excellent work. You are the model of what a servant ought to be. In the ancient world, being a servant was a thankless task. The mindset was, I'm not worthy for praise. I'm not worthy for thanks. I'm just doing my job. And this this master lavishes praise on the servant in in ways the servant has never experienced before in their life. Lavishes him with praise, lavishes him with a promotion. He says, you were faithful with a little. 3.4 million, I guess, is a little. He says, now, the master says, now I'm going to put you in charge of a lot. Um, The rabbis used to say the reward for a duty accomplished is a duty assigned. The reward for being faithful in your duty is to be given the responsibility and the authority to accomplish more duties. I'm going to be done saying the word duty now. Um, he got a praise, a promotion, and he was invited to participate in the master's celebration. He says, come and share in your master's happiness. Come and celebrate with me. Come and be a part of the party that celebrates what you've been able to accomplish. It probably uh, meant sitting at the master's table. It probably meant being elevated in social rank and standing throughout the community. He just was like, come and be a part of what I'm doing. And the same thing, it's funny, the guy brings five bags of gold back as profit, and this is the praise that he gets, praise, promotion, participation. The guy who earns two bags extra gets exactly the same response, word for word, verbatim, praise, promotion, and participation in the master's happiness and celebration. And then it says, in verse 24, the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you're a hard man, 
investing where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, uh, here's what belongs to you. This guy kind of knows at this point that he's in trouble. He's seen what the others have done with their money. And so he comes to the master to settle accounts and he doesn't come presenting the money. He comes presenting excuses. He comes presenting accusations. Actually, master, it's your fault. You're such a hard and demanding, severe, uncompromising boss. I was terrified to screw this assignment up. And so because I know that you're such an exacting, demanding boss who makes money in places where you haven't even invested, I was afraid of losing your money, and so I protected it as best I could. And look, I didn't lose a cent. Here is every dime you entrusted to me. And the master, in verse 26, the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and you gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would receive it back with interest. The master said, I'm going to hang you with your own words. If I'm such a hard, uh, severe, uncompromising, demanding boss who always demands profitability, why did you not go? And at the very least, if you were afraid to do, you know, venture capital to really put the money to work because you didn't want to lose it, why not at least invest it with the bankers? Notice he doesn't even say put it in with one banker because if something happens, you've lost all your money. No, no, no. Diversify your investments. Spread it out among several bankers. Keep it safe. That way if something happens over here, you're still making money over here. Why not, at the very least, put it in a savings account and earn like even 0.1%. Like bring me 672 bucks at the end of it and say, look, this was all I was able to do. At least then I would have been pleased because you had generated more. But as it is, not good and faithful servant, wicked, evil, lazy servant who refused to participate in my business and earn profit for me. This is what happens to the servant. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master says, throw this worthless servant outside. He is worthless to me. He is useless to me. Because he refuses to participate in what I am doing and generate income on my business interests. What's the point of the story? Well, Jesus is the master in the story who has an interest in what's going on in the world. In fact, we talked about this in the first week of the series. That Jesus came the first time, and it's almost the Christmas season, so I don't mind talking about Christmas at this point. When Jesus came the first time, 
talked about this in the first week. Jesus came in order to begin the process of putting right everything that sin has put wrong in us and in our world. Jesus came to teach what it looks like for us to live in the loving or to practice the presence of a loving God. Jesus came to show us what it looks like to love everybody else as much as we love ourselves. Jesus came to teach and to model what it means to love the world with God's self-sacrificing, self-giving, just love of justice and compassion for the poor and the hurting and the marginalized. And then at the end of his life, Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead to break the grip of evil on our world so that he might send the power of the Holy Spirit on his servants to continue the work that he began. And one day Jesus is going to return to finish the project of making right everything that sin has made wrong in us and in the world. And when he returns, he is going to evaluate how we have participated in what he is doing in the world. In Acts chapter 1, the gospel writer Luke is writing his second book. It says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. It was former book uh, until the day he was taken up to heaven. Um, the, in his former book, his former book was the life story of Jesus in which he began to describe, or he described everything that Jesus began to do and teach. His implication in this second book, which is about the church, is that the story of the church is the story of everything that Jesus continues to do and teach by the power of the Holy Spirit through the community of people who in faith have entrusted their lives to him, have been forgiven and transformed and joined together in community to continue the work that Jesus began to continue to participate in helping other people learn what it means to love God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. What it looks like for people to learn to love themselves as those who have been beloved by God, to teach people what it looks like and to model what it looks like to love each other, the people that God has put into our lives in relationship to show the world what it means to practice God's self-giving, self-sacrificing love of compassion and justice as we serve the poor and the forgotten, the left out and the left behind. Jesus says the story of the church is the story of my servants continuing to expand and to spread my business, which is the kingdom of God around the world. And Jesus has invested heavily in us in order to participate in that, right? In the story, the master gives every one of the servants the talent, right? The Greek word talent. And we brought that word because of this passage, actually, we brought that word over into English and we use the word talent to mean capacity or ability. But in, in a sense, the investment that Jesus has made in each one of us is the sum total of everything that God has invested in who we are and in what we have. It's not just our talents and abilities. It's our personality. It's our unique perspective. 
It's all of the things that are demographically true about us. God has invested us with a cultural experience. God has invested us with a gender identity. God has invested us with resources. God has invested us with a network. God has invested us with an education or whatever it is that God has invested in you. He has richly endowed you to to take what he has given you and use it to participate in the world. In fact, uh, the scriptures say, you know, what do we have that we've not received from God? Nothing. Everything we have and everything we are is a gift from God. That he, not a gift that he's given us. These aren't ours to use for our own benefit or our own advantage. What God has invested in us is an entrustment. He's loaned it to us. And he has asked us to use the things that he has invested in us to multiply kingdom gain in the world to use it so people would love God and love each other and love the world so people would um, acknowledge their sin and receive forgiveness from Jesus and be transformed to be joined into community to do kingdom things in the world and he has invested in us lavishly you know in one servant 3.4 3.4 million dollars, 1.3 million dollars, 675 thousand dollars, five pounds, two pounds, one pound. He is he has richly and lavishly invested in us, given us over and abundantly more than we could ever imagine. He's invested in us to be used for his purpose. And and the point is not to figure out if you're a five talent person or a two talent person or a one talent person. You'll never figure that out, right? So the purpose is not to figure out if you have more talents than the person sitting beside you. You know, that's not the, we could never figure that out anyway. Because we use all the wrong metrics for that. Right? We've learned from our culture that the really significant people are the rich and the famous people of influence and a platform. People who have published or written music or, you know, whatever. People who um, are the identified significant people in the world are often not significant people in the kingdom. The first shall be last and the last shall be first, Jesus says. I remember hearing an interview years ago, somebody interviewing on TV, a Christian leader, and saying, who's the most significant Christian on the planet right now? And the Christian leader said, well, I don't know, and you don't know either. Uh, it's not any of the people that you've heard of or any of the people that I've heard of. It's probably, this is literally what she said, it's probably some old woman dying of cancer in a rural hospital in backwater India who has done more for the cause of Jesus Christ in this world than anybody else in ways that we'll never know and in ways that we could never measure. You, the point is not, are you a five-talent person or a two-talent or a one-talent person? The point is, Have you taken what God has invested you and committed your life to energetically and enthusiastically leveraging what God has invested in you to create kingdom gain in the world, to expand the scope and the breadth and the depth of what God is doing in the world? Because that's what God has called us into. And my fear is that there are some of us who don't share that vision of what we are supposed to be doing with our lives until Jesus returns. I know for a long time, I didn't. For a long time, I lived more like that third servant. The one who hid the gold in the ground and protected it for safekeeping. That servant was afraid that the master would be angry if they couldn't if the, basically, that sermon was afraid that the master would be angry if they screwed it up. 
And I think there are a lot of people in our community who have an instinct buried deep within our gut, even if we don't live it most of the time. There's an instinct still there, deep in our gut, that we live our faith with this fear that God is going to be mad if we screw it up. And so we kind of focus the energy and attention of our faith on just trying not to screw it up. Right, I often I imagine, like, what was the servant, the, other, the two servants were working hard. What was this other guy doing after he buried the gold? I imagine him just setting up a lawn chair a distance away and just watching, like just vigilantly making sure that he didn't screw it up. And I think there are some of us, or maybe most of us, who have an instinct deep in our gut that the point of, the, of following Jesus is simply trying to avoid sin. Simply trying to avoid doing the stuff that we know that God doesn't want. And so our life of faith almost becomes a little bit like swatting mosquitoes, right? Like you're, you're kind of vigilantly looking at your arm. You see a mosquito land in your arm, slap it. Okay, there's, that one's gone. Before it can do any damage, where's another one? Oh, there, okay, that one's, oh, there's another one. You're swatting them. You're just trying to prevent yourself from getting bit by sin mosquitoes, By being damaged by sin. You're just trying not to screw it up. And so you play it as safe as you possibly can. Because you're just trying not to make any mistakes. And that vision of faith is rooted in a vision of God. The servant says to the master, you are hard, stern, uncompromising, demanding boss. And I know you'd be mad if I screwed this up. And I wonder how many of us, we don't want to, but still somewhere deep in our spirit, live with this suspicion that God is actually a stern and harsh, uncompromising, demanding God who's going to be ticked if we sin. Who's going to be ticked every time we screw it up. And truth be told, that's just not real. Now, don't hear me say that sin doesn't matter. Sin matters tremendously. The definition of sin is doing anything that's contrary to love, and love is the work of the kingdom of God. Every time we ignore God instead of loving him, that's a sin. Every time we heap guilt and shame on ourselves instead of embracing the forgiveness of God, that's a sin. Every time we uh, you know, manipulate and dominate other people in relationship, that's a sin. Every time we exploit creation and the vulnerable for our own gain, that's a sin. And we have, by virtue of that, stopped participating in the kingdom of God. And because of that, we have stopped participating in the propagating of the kingdom of God. If you're not loving God and yourself and each other in the world, you can't help anybody else love God themselves, each other in the world. You take yourself completely out of the kingdom game whenever you sin. So yes, be vigilant about sin in your life but not because the Christian life is fundamentally about avoiding sin but because the Christian life is fundamentally about participating in the mission of Jesus Christ to spread the forgiving, transforming, healing, reconciling love of God throughout your heart and around the entire world and that's what God is inviting you into And the God who's inviting you into that is not a stern, hard, uncompromising, demanding God who's going to be mad every time you screw it up. He's not. God isn't angry. He's merciful and compassionate and forgiving. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, God is love. This is how we know 
Or this is how love is made complete among us. So we all have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. This is what John is saying. Some of us are so afraid of being punished by God for the ways we screw it up. We all screw it up. I screw it up every day. I screw it up every hour. My love for God, screw it up. My love for myself, screw it up. My love for my wife, my love for my kids, my love for my friends, my love for you all who I love deeply, my love for the world, I screw it up all the time. John's point is, God isn't mad, God's love. God isn't going to punish those who put their faith in Christ. God is gonna forgive and redeem and embrace them. And here's how you have confidence in the day of judgment, that you have nothing to fear when Jesus returns and looks at your life and says, what did you do with the time that I gave you? If you have, John says, you have nothing to fear if in this world you have been like Jesus. What was Jesus like? He practiced the presence of a loving God. He loved everyone else as much as he loved himself. He loved the world with the self-sacrificing, self-giving, compassionate, just Love of God for the poor, the forgotten, ignored, the left out, and left behind. And to the degree that by the power of the Holy Spirit, forgiven and transformed by Jesus, we live the life of Jesus in the world. We have absolutely nothing to fear. <laughs> the master says to the servant, I would have been happy with a 0.1% return of investment if you had only showed me you tried. So here's the question. What are you living your life for? Are you living your life in fear of a stern, angry God who's going to punish you every single time you screw it up? So you're just living your life, walking on eggshells, trying desperately not to sin or playing it safe? Or are you living a bold energetic, enthusiastic life of taking risks in order to participate in spreading the love of God around the world in partnership with Jesus? Are you living to create kingdom gain for the master so that one day when he returns, he'll open his arms wide and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been, I've entrusted, you've been trustworthy with little. I will now trust you with much. Come and enter your master's eternal joy. That's the invitation of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I suspect that there are people in the room who are scared of you. Who have a sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of vision of what you're like. And I pray you would set us free from that. I pray that you would help us see you for who you really are, the loving, forgiving God. What you said in the scriptures, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness to a thousand generations of those who love me. God, would that vision of who you are inspire us to live the life boldly, energetically, enthusiastically, taking risks 
to do what you've called us to do, which is to participate in, in the spreading of your, the kingdom of your love around the world. Doesn't have to be in huge ways, God. 0.1% interest. Give us the courage to be bold and to live the life of the kingdom for Jesus' sake that we might one day hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my eternal joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.